You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades. Light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Rory McGovern, who's currently the American History Division Chief in the History Department here at West Point. Rory, welcome to The Spear. Thanks. Happy to be here. How'd you wind up in the Army? Uh, This was just something that I always had in the back of my mind as something that I wanted to do. Um... Didn't come from a family that had a, a strong tradition, family tradition of service. Um, so it was, it was something that caught my interest early. And maybe I'm stubborn, maybe I'm consistent, and just made a plan early and stuck with it. So uh, by the time I was in high school, I applied to all of the service academies, all the ROTC programs. Uh, I had a number of childhood medical issues that had been resolved, but the effect of them meant that I, I did not meet the medical requirements for most of the services, but I did get a medical waiver that allowed me to go to Boston College uh, on a four-year Army ROTC scholarship, uh, which turned out to be uh, much to my great and good fortune. The, the officers at uh, the officer and NCOs at, at Boston College were phenomenal trainers, and I feel like they prepared me well. So I commissioned when I graduated in May 2005, and here I still am. After commissioning, where'd you go? So I commissioned as a field artillery officer. I did a, a, a very brief stint at Fort Knox uh, training ROTC cadets at, at one of their summer training camps. And then went on to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, home in the field artillery, and uh, and went through what was then called Officer Basic Course, now now Bullock Basic Officer Leader Course, uh, but went through uh, and learned what it takes to be a field artillery officer. I was there from August of 2005 through January of, of 2006. Do you still have nightmares about manual gunnery? <laughs> I do still have nightmares about manual gunnery. In fact, uh, and you'll appreciate this as as a Marine Corps officer, my uh, both of my both of my instructors uh, for fire support and for gunnery were Marines. 
But the gunnery instructor stands out in particular. First of all, his name was Captain Sergeant, which is hilarious. But uh, second of all, uh, when we did our first charts and darts uh, exercise, which is a manual tabulation of of a firing solution, uh, he had given us instructions that in the top left corner in, in all block letters we were supposed to put first initial, middle initial, last name, next line, class number, next line, date, next line, assignment number, and then on this three-foot-high chart, we were supposed to work our solution. Uh, And so I had reversed in the top left corner lines two and three, but everything else was exactly right. He went through and with little red pen just checked off all my right pin marks and solutions and firing data. And then he circled the reversed lines in the top left corner and wrote in big block letters covering all three feet of the board, your failure to follow simple instructions will cause somebody, will get somebody killed someday, redo. That sounds about like Fort Sill and the Marine <laughs> gunnery instructors there. I had, uh, I think, it's a very similar experience. After Sill, where'd you go? Uh, so I reported to my first duty station at Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, I had an assignment to 1st Cavalry Division. Uh, in 1st Brigade. Went through in-processing, in-process at division, in-processed at brigade. Uh, a lieutenant that I had reported, uh, reported Fort Hood with, who was one of my classmates at, at OBC, we went and interviewed with the artillery battalion commander who was trying to figure out where to place us because he had two openings, one as a fire direction officer inside Alpha Battery. Uh, this was in 1st in Battalion, 82nd Field Artillery, and one had to go and be a company fire support officer in 2nd in, uh, Battalion, 5th Cavalry. And he just wanted to interview us and, and asked us, uh, if an infantryman comes up and, and asks you uh, and says to you that, hey, the field artillery is irrelevant on the modern battlefield, uh, you don't bring anything to the fight, how do you respond? Go. And the lieutenant that I, that I reported with gave a phenomenal answer, textbook, strong advocate for the field artillery. And then he looked at me, and it was my turn. And, you know, I'm a second lieutenant. I don't know how to follow that. Uh, and I obviously know I can't say I'll – I'll just say what he said. Uh, And I did want to start at the fire support officer job. So with the textbook answer already being taken, Mm -hmm. he just, he looked at me and said, what are you saying? I said, well, sir, in this scenario, are you infantryman, a lieutenant colonel, battalion commander, or are you just a random infantryman? He said, oh, I'm just a random infantryman. So I'd tell you to go to hell. And he, the battalion XO standing in the background, looking at me like, he gets to kill a lieutenant today. And the battalion commander just looked shocked for a second. He, he burst out laughing and said, you're, you're the one who's going to that, that unit. You're going to start as a Company 8 fire support officer. We'll bring you back eventually to the gun line. Uh, but, yes, I think we need that attitude there. So when you go over to 25 Cav, did you get to tell anybody to go to hell? I didn't. I didn't, which was a big letdown for me. But... Uh, um, but now I, so I went right over to two five cab and it was, it was an interesting point to, to get there. Uh, I had been, we had all been briefed on our way out of Fort Sill, uh, that, Hey, you're all new lieutenants in the army. You don't know how the army works. So when you show up, uh, you are allowed 10 days permissive TDY to, to do house hunting. So make sure you ask for it. 
And so we showed up, and I, uh, you know, met my new boss. Uh, he kind of gave me the lay of the land. I mentioned the 10 days permissive TDY thing, and he said, yes, you do get that, but we're just now fielding brand new M3A3 BFISTs, and we're going through OpNet, so you can have a day. And uh, but day after tomorrow, I need you here, uh, and you're going to sign for the M3A3, and you're going to start in on day on day one of OpNet. Uh, and that was really lucky because starting in, receiving a new piece of equipment, and going through the learning process for it uh, was probably the best way for a brand new lieutenant to meet the fire support team enter on the ground level as they are getting to know a new piece of equipment and in a a structured environment that really forces you to bond as a team for the six weeks that opnet was going on and we went straight from opnet right into uh battalion ftx uh and not long after that uh we had a brigade ftx um so there really was not – it was a heavy train-up schedule, so there was not a lot of downtime. But I, I think I entered at just the right just the right moment to really set, set me up for success and set the team up for success. After the brigade train-up or during the brigade train-up, did you find out where you were going? So this was uh, – the train-up was spring and summer of 2006, and we uh, we ended up after the brigade FTX, which was April – uh, 2006. We were generally aware that we were probably deploying to Iraq. And so we went to JRTC for our certification exercise. Uh, and in the last week at JRTC, we had been told that our orders were canceled and that there was likely going to be a drawdown in Iraq coming. So we, we, uh, we weren't sure. Um, we weren't sure if that were, would hold. Uh, of course, being a, a very foolish second lieutenant, a lot of my, my friends and I thought, well, that's too bad. We may have missed the war. Uh, so we went back from JRTC. We were allowed to take uh, some block leave after JRTC showed back up, uh, showed back up at the tail end of July. And by, by the second week of August, we had definite orders uh, that uh, there, in fact, was not going to be a drawdown. And we were going to Baghdad. Generally, we knew it was going to be Western Baghdad, uh, and we would deploy at the tail end of October. Uh, so as we started getting ready for that, we started getting a little more detail uh, about our the area of operations that we would fall in on. Uh, we were going to replace my battalion, 2-5 Cav, was going to be detached from uh, 1st Brigade, 1st Cav, and attached to 2nd Brigade, 1st First Infantry Division. Uh, and we were going to the Abu Ghraib district of Baghdad, which is right on the western edge, uh, basically where, at that time, the division boundary between multinational division Baghdad and uh, multinational forces west, uh, with the Marines in the west, was. Uh, we were the westernmost battalion in multinational division Baghdad, which made for an interesting uh interesting area because the eastern, the southeastern third of our area of operation was urban, completely urban. The southwestern third was a mix 
of urban stretching into rural stretching into desert and the mm-hmm. northern third was all rural and that that was that was the battalion's area now some interesting uh, changes happened as we were getting ready to go uh, because we were a combined arms battalion. So what we had was were um, the battalion headquarters, two mechanized infantry companies, uh, two tank companies, and an engineering company. And I had been the fire support officer for Charlie Company, which was one of the tank companies. Uh, so we got word in late August. It was either late August or early September that when we deployed, Charlie Company was being taken out of the battalion and sent to the division headquarters to be uh, the division PSD, the Division Personal Security Detachment, and it was going to be sent company pure, no attachments. So it was a kind of a question mark what was going to happen to my fire support team. As the battalion went through their, their military decision-making process, uh, they, they realized that they couldn't actually afford the loss of the company. So what they did was they created a fourth company out of Hyde. They took the engineering company headquarters and one of the engineer platoons. They had to send a, the second platoon off on a route clearance mission. And they augmented it with the mortar platoon, a tank platoon, and the scout platoon, and my fire support team. This quickly became a thoroughly combined arms company team that had a little bit of everything. It had infantry, it had armor, it had scouts, it had mortars, it had field artillerymen, uh, and it had engineers. Uh, and it became the biggest company in the battalion. <laughs> and we got put in into this area of operations that, uh, for part of the battalion's operation at least, was actually the main effort. So it was it was interesting. It was right at the right at the edge of the deployment. Uh, it was being put into a, a new element inside a new team, and the whole team was new. That the only people in that company that were used to working with each other were the headquarters and the Echo Company's first platoon. Everybody else was new new to the element. Uh, so that was that was interesting. It was kind of a, a both. Exciting and a an obvious point of concern, uh, and so when we when we had our initial stop off in Kuwait, we there was a lot of attention paid towards company level training to make sure all the different parts of the new team could work well together. Were you considered an attachment to this company or organic to it? So I had been the way we task organized at the time. The fire support teams were organic to the headquarters company of the battalion. And then when in the field and, and deployed, we would be attached to, attached to the companies that we supported. But our organic company headquarters was the, was the headquarters, was the HHC. Once you got into Kuwait, what, what was your daily routine? So daily routine in Kuwait was we had uh, – there was a lot of mandatory training on, on – uh, uh, theater entering deployed mission essential uh, task list. So everybody entering Kuwait at that time had to uh, had to zero and qualify uh, on on their assigned weapons. Everybody had to do rollover drills. Everybody had to go through counter IED training, uh, and everybody had to go through react to sniper training because there there was um, 
there was increasing threat at the time from from sniper attacks, especially in our area. Uh, so there was a um, asymmetric warfare group team there that walked us through React to Sniper TTPs and and intelligence gathering TTPs. So if you did have a sniper problem in your area, you could you could root them out. Now we also had to go through a lot of um, lessons learned briefing, best practices briefings, everything ranging from how to build patrols of mixed mixed vehicles, what what order is best if you're mixing your your combat vehicles, down to latest trends in IEDs uh, at the time when we were going into a, in our area the trends were pressure plate and crush wire, uh, but that's at least what was briefed to us. Uh, in as the the trend when we were in Kuwait, but when we got there, we found that actually wasn't the case that they had already already switched back to command wire, and so it was that was mostly the the daily routine were those those required tasks where we found seams in where we found seams in the schedule. That's where we would work on uh, the team and, and company training. We did a lot of enter building clear room from fire team and fire support team on up to platoon on up to company level. We did a lot of um, a lot of map exercises, just scenario based map exercises, uh, it, which actually helped us get to know our area before we showed up. So, but those, like I said, those were trying to find seams in the, in the pre-program calendar. Were you just responsible for the fist or were you a platoon leader at this time too? Uh, no. So I was, I was responsible for the fire support team, but what we found at that time uh, was we were getting additional tasks piled on. So my job was to lead the fire support team and also serve as the company's intelligence officer, um, so which was interesting because uh, at this time, the battalion S2 was overworked and underbanned. Uh, so there was a lot of impetus to try and, and get some type of, comp- of intelligence capability at the company. Now, obviously, you can't mass-produce 35-series soldiers, and you can't rob from the battalion's undermanned S2 shop and put them in the companies. Uh, so the solution that we arrived at, that since sometimes we would have to be calling for fire or coordinating air support, but most of the time we wouldn't be, that one of the main jobs of the fire support element would be to manage company level intelligence. So for me, uh, that meant getting spun up on um, battlefield forensics, which we actually had a battlefield, a uh, interagency uh, law enforcement team come to Fort Hood and, and train us up on, on battlefield forensics for a two week long course. Um, it also meant uh, talking to a lot of human types to figure out best practices for interviewing people that we came across on the, on the battlefields, best practices for predictive and pattern analysis uh, in order to paint, paint a, a good and detailed picture uh, of the company's area. Uh, so that was, it was a lot of on-the-job studying up to get ready for that. When you arrived in Iraq, mm-hmm. what went through your mind? So that was, it was a bit of a rude awakening uh, when I arrived in Iraq. So we flew at night, 
I didn't really know what to think. I was obviously a little excited, a little nervous, also scared, scared of the unknown. I mean, at this point, we deployed in October 06, uh, and so we stayed in Kuwait for about two weeks. Uh, so at the time that we're pushing up into Iraq, it was around the middle of November of 06. And uh, I remember my brigade commander, then Colonel, uh, now, now General Funk, he met my chalk as we were going to the bus to, to, to go to the airfield. Uh, and he just gave us this pump-up, go-to-war speech like you'd see in the movies and 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 he was it signaled that things were getting swirly in our area uh but that he had confidence that we in our ability to do the mission and he also knew that we were being detached uh to second brigade first uh, first infantry division but also knew that the plan was once second brigade rotated out that first brigade's area would expand and they'd just reabsorb us uh so he was basically trying to let us know that he still had a, still had our backs uh, so that was that kind of amped us up to get on the plane, and then of course you get on the plane, and it's a C-130. Uh, it's it's nighttime, so you got the eerie red light going, uh, and then and we're on the plane for a while, and we don't really know how long we're going to be on the plane or where we are, and you have no awareness of anything other than you're going to buy up, uh, and then suddenly all the lights go out, and the plane goes into its combat landing, uh, which. It went from a, a what I assume was a pretty high altitude to landing very quickly. It just went into a nosedive, did its barrel rolls, evasive maneuvers, and, and landed. And so that in itself was, I was not expecting that. Uh, I didn't know if that was a normal thing or a bad sign. Um, and the ramp dropped uh, and we're walk, filing off, you know, they, they take the pilot off the back of the plane and we're, we're filing off. And as we're filing off, it's first cab coming from Fort Hood to replace 4th ID soldiers going back to Fort Hood. So it was almost like an I'm out, you're in situation. And we're filing off the plane, they're filing on the plane. And, and uh, you know, we're getting, you know, the usual good lucks and, and a couple disconcerting, like keep your head down. Uh, and we get about 150 meters away from the plane, 200 meters, and then the airfield gets rocketed. That was, so <laughs> airfield gets rocketed, which was a uh, kind of a a very quick welcome to Baghdad. It, this is this is getting real now. And so, yeah, we it, the impacts weren't terribly close to us. So we 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 kind of hustled off the airfield away from the impacts, which is good because that's also where the buses were waiting for us and piled on the buses and they bring us around and, and my battalion was going to a living area that was right on the uh, northern edge of Camp Liberty. Uh, so Camp Liberty is one of the camps that surrounded uh, surrounded Victory and Biap. Uh, but where we were, we were right next to entry control point three. Uh, so we were on the, on the, on the northern wall and, and not far off of the northern wall is is uh, the Abu Ghraib district of Baghdad. Uh, and so as we're sitting there waiting for our word on where to go, which which spots to occupy, where to drop bags, you can hear in the not too, not too far away, we could hear a 
firefight going on, a lot of explosions, um, machine gun fire. And then you could actually see in the night sky, you could actually see a, a Spectre gunship open up. So it turned out it was a, a special forces action that was going on, uh, obviously not too far away from the wall. So this was, it was an interesting night uh, of, of being welcomed to Baghdad. And so at that point, we knew, uh, you obviously get the sense that, okay, this is, this is serious. Uh, not that we ever doubted that it would be. So then uh, we got integrated with the unit that we were replacing. Uh, I was one of the early arrivals for that. And so we started the left seat, right seat ride uh, and, and getting, getting to know the area. So I got synced in with my, uh, with my counterpart, uh, the company fire support officer that I was replacing, who uh, they used him for some intelligence work as well. Uh, so that was, that was good uh, to, to kind of compare notes with what I thought and expected would happen with what he saw in, in practice and started getting, getting to know the, the area. And that, again, was a uh, pretty fast, pretty fast wake-up call to all the problems that were going on in western Baghdad uh, in the fall of 2006. Uh, we're starting to see sectarian violence on the increase, uh, on an increase. My first actual mission that I was out on, we came across some um, murdered local nationals and, and, you know, it's a left seat, right seat ride. So that's, you know, my counterpart just turns to me very nonchalantly and says, okay, well, one of your jobs is going to be to check to see if this is sectarian violence or not. I say, well, how, how do you know? He says, usually signs of torture, uh, usually signs of torture. So then we start getting in the back of this, this pickup truck and start looking at these, um, examining these, these bodies for, uh, for signs of torture. And, and it was evident that, yes, they had been tortured. So the report goes up. Uh, so all the various headquarters can accurately track that there is clearly a, uh, a, a sectarian violence problem happening in this area and, and figure out what to do about it. So, and that's where we, we, we get to know the area pretty well. Um, we get to introduce to all the power players, uh, but also they're, they're, the unit is giving us the lay of recent events in the land. So when we're in uh, the neighborhood of Kandari, uh, which is basically a village on the western end of the Abu Ghraib district, uh, actually where where the Abu Ghraib prison used to be, uh, still stood but wasn't operating at the time. Uh, uh, that's where they kind of let us know that hey, there's there's a sniper problem here. This there is a sniper that has it killed two of the uh, two of the soldiers in the company that we were replacing. Uh, and two of the Iraqi army soldiers that were in a, a small battalion just just northwest of the village, and they're introducing us to the roots. And it's they say up here is the village of Sumalat. Almost every time you go there, you're going to get into contact. Over here is the village of Nasser Wasalam. It's think squirrely things are starting to 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 happen there. Up here in the northwest, you got the village of Hamdania, and nobody goes there. So they gave us the, the lay of the land, and the left seat, right seat ride was mostly uh, without 
incident. The battalion had their first few, uh, I mean, without contact, I, I would say, contact with the enemy. Battalion had, had a few. We actually took our first uh, two casualties before we hit Toa. But then I distinctly remember on the day of the transfer of authority uh, that we got into our first uh, complex action. And so, it, and it was just off to the off to the races from there. It was a busy, busy uh, and event-filled first. Let's say four or five months of the deployment. It, it was it was the wild west. While it was the wild west, what was your daily or weekly routine like? I was uh, mission after mission after mission. What we found pretty quickly uh, was that there was far more to do than even we with the the size of the company that we had could do. So generally speaking, I would go out on mission whenever the company commander went out. Uh, And so that involved any company level operation, but also frequently uh, the company commander was going out in his own element uh, to for to engage with certain local leaders uh, just to check sniff out something if if his intuition was telling him that uh, that we needed to learn something about a certain part of the AO uh, or in some cases if if we had five missions for a day and three platoons or or sometimes four platoons then. You know, we would scramble together what was in an ad hoc platoon and, and catch the last the last mission. Uh, so it was mission after mission after mission. Um, and in the early part of the deployment, uh, the biggest issue that we were facing with we we looked at Kandari as kind of the the center of gravity in the company's area because that was where. It seems like we had the greatest ability to influence some goodwill in the area and that we would we would spread out from there. It also seemed like because of that, it, that area was, was getting a lot of attention from al-Qaeda in Iraq. The intelligence reports that we were getting and the incidents that we were seeing were seemed like that there was a concerted pressure campaign against the local sheikh that al-Qaeda in Iraq was waging. Uh, we also knew that there was some 1920s Revolutionary Brigade presence there, uh, but we knew from the unit that that we had replaced that they had apparently gone dormant and hadn't been up to anything for about four months before we went in. So we were focused heavily uh, on that Kandari area, uh, trying to really understand what was going on, who Al-Qaeda in Iraq was going after and why, and trying to convince that village uh, that they could trust us to take care of the problem and and help us work against uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. In all of these missions, what's going through your mind as you're out on the patrol? Um, so brand new second lieutenant, I'm... I'm, I'm very painfully aware of my inexperience and I'm trying hard not to make a mistake that's going to get somebody get somebody killed uh so on that first that day of toa 
in that complex action that we got. I actually, my truck was hit with with an IED that fortunately, it hit us hard. Shockwave disoriented a lot of people. The the uh, I distinctly remember the inside of the Humvee I thought was on fire because uh, it filled with uh, smoke and dust, and I couldn't see anything, and all I could smell was the explosion. Um, and, you know, quickly calling out for everybody's status, realized that somehow everybody's okay. Uh, and... Uh, so that stuck with me uh, because I was sure since the hit came from the right side of the vehicle, I was, I was sure that there was some way I should have seen that, uh, some way that I should have seen that. Of course, uh, you know, at the time I was looking at the, the people who were shooting at us with PKCs um, and, and directing fire. But I, I was sure that I, I should have seen uh, that I that IED. So I I was uh, what was foremost on my mind was not making a mistake that was going to get somebody hurt or, or or grievously injured. Now also on my mind uh, though was trying to figure out the local power dynamics since I was I was working uh, fire support tasks when we needed it. So when we were in contact, if air was good, it, it, if air was was green, that is. Usually we wouldn't be in contact that long before I was able to get Apaches to show up, and in one way or another, that would end the situation. And but those were fewer and farther between than just talking to shopkeepers and talking to the shake and trying to get a sense of who the good players are, who the bad players are, who the neutral players are. What's the general sense of? Uh, of the local environment, one of the things that the I would do with the PSYOP chief, the, the team that was attached to us, is uh, we'd go into the main street, and Kandari is, is where all the shops are, uh, and we'd go in and try to buy things because uh, that was a pretty good indicator of, of what was going on. If they would allow us to buy things, then that meant they were feeling pretty comfortable. Uh, if they would allow us to pay in U.S. dollars, that meant they were feeling super comfortable <laughs> and nobody was nobody's looking over their shoulder. Uh, so we, that's just an, an example of one of the things uh, one of the things that that we do. But that first month, uh, that first month was all about just trying to understand the environment and also trying not to make a mistake that would get somebody killed. After getting hit in that early battle, mm-hmm. were you hit again? Yes. Um, so it was a busy, uh, busy first month or so in the AO. So the the transfer of authority was on the second of December, uh, and that was also the the first real action that I was in. Um, and we got hit by the that IED. Uh, and the, you know, my side of the vehicle had been peppered, uh, with some small arms fire. And so we go through, uh, we go through the rest of December, uh, and we have, you know, occasional one-offs, IED here, um, some stray gunfire there. Uh, so occasional one-offs, but then things got picked up, started picking up again, uh, towards the end of the month. And so I had mentioned that Kandari had a, uh, a sniper problem. And uh, 
It was the day after Christmas. So, was, yeah, December 2006. We were actually uh, going up that main street in Kandari. Uh, there was a elementary school on the east side of the road uh, before you hit the, the shop the, where the shops were. And we were about one block north of north of the um, the elementary school, and there I was with the with the psyop team chief. Uh, we had just been talking to one of the shopkeepers, and and the the patrol had stopped, and um, our battalion commander was out with us. So uh, there was it was a larger patrol than usual. We were a mix of uh, vehicle of Humvees and uh, and a lot of us on foot, uh, and. I, you know, stopped, said something to uh, to Sergeant Hogan, uh, the PSYOP team chief, and he, uh, Sergeant Hogan, has one of the greatest senses of humor that I've ever encountered. And he said something very funny, and I moved my head and laughed, and right at that moment, I heard a crack, and then... A bullet went so close to my head. Like pe- people talk about the whistle, the hisses and the whistles. If it if it's close, if it's really close, it sounds like a train, and it sounds it, 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 it's I, I can't describe the sound. It's almost like um, it, I, I, the closest I can I can describe to it is a train with with its horn blaring as it goes by you, and so close that I heard that and it, it, the force of it pulled my face a little to the side and this round just impacts on the wall right behind me. Um, and I had a little bit of a, little bit of a graze. And um, so, so that was also a wake-up moment because that a single shot, a single shot, you know it's a sniper. And of course, well, I was thankful for Sergeant Hogan's life-saving sense of humor because if I hadn't tipped my head back and laughed, that that would have hit me dead on. So Sergeant Hogan has life-saving sense of humor that I'll I'll always be grateful for. Uh, but so initially, just dive for cover, did the quick you know hand check of everywhere on my body, uh, and look over at Sergeant Hogan, who it was it was a close call for him too, and he's doing the same thing. Uh, of course, we all start fanning out, trying to find where it came from, and and uh, to no avail. Uh, and so, about two days later, we were in the same general area, but about now three blocks, four blocks farther north. Uh, because what happened was, it was um, the sheikh had asked us to protect a send-off party. Uh, that he was throwing was in fact a send-off festival for people from his village who were going to the on the Hajj pil- pilgrimage, and he was concerned based on some threats that he had received that Al Qaeda in Iraq was going to attack it. Uh, so two days later, uh, this is December twenty eighth now of two thousand six, um, we secured the village so that he could send his people off on the on the Hajj pilgrimage properly. Uh, and so what securing that the village meant uh, was we had on the southern end of the village, there was this bridge 
that went over uh, went over a multi-lane highway that goes west towards Fallujah, uh, and we had parked. We had at any any given time we had either two tanks or two Bradleys on the bridge. It was uh, armored OP because it could look straight down the main street. Uh, so we had the OP there. We supplemented it with the scout platoon, uh, with with the scout platoon in a, in battle position on the southern end. Uh, then the uh, first the red platoon, the first platoon of the engineers, uh, they had a few positions on the west that they were roving between, and then the mortar platoon uh, set up positions in the northeast, so right near the sheikh's house where he was hosting people for this party. And so I was with the commander that day. It was a company operation. Uh, I was with the commander that day. And we were checking on the northeast battle position, uh, checking on uh, on the mortar platoon. It was actually steps outside the sheikh's compound. And, uh, and where this was, it's the main street in Kandari ends at a T intersection. Uh, so the sheikh's house was east east of that, northeast of that T intersection, pretty big compound, directly across the street, actually, from the old Abu Ghraib prison. Uh, we were there. Uh, I was next to the mortar platoon sergeant at the time, I believe. We'd obviously dismounted our vehicles and were walking around the battle position. We were actually getting ready to go talk to the sheikh. Uh, and again, single shot run, rings out. And uh, again, hear, hear the noise of a bullet close, except this time, uh, my, I, I feel a sharp burning sensation through my ankle and my right leg, I was standing facing east, my right leg just basically flew south um, involuntarily. Um, and so instantly, you know, as soon as the shot happens, already thinking sniper and, and obviously get hit almost immediately. Uh, and with the burning sensation and the movement of the legs, like, oh, my God, it's a sniper. He shot at me. Uh, I actually got hit. Now, one of the things that they taught us uh, in Kuwait and they drilled into us was if you get engaged by a sniper, you're going to know because it's a single shot. And if, if, if it doesn't kill you, a second shot is coming. So if you know where it came from, generally – run perpendicular to the direction that it came from because it's obviously harder to hit a target moving side to side than it is to hit a target that's moving vertically as compared to the shooter uh, or or to or from the shooter. Uh, So um, that kicked in immediately. So I, you know, I was about, I was not in a good spot for getting any sort of cover. Uh, And my the closest cover was actually my Humvee that was about 100 meters behind me to the west. Um, so I wheeled around, just started sprinting as, as as hard as I could. Obviously, adrenaline is a wonderful thing. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I've ever run faster in my life, even though I was increasingly aware with every step that I took uh, that my ankle was getting weaker, 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 weaker. Now, I didn't feel any pain because... Adrenaline is a wonderful thing. <laughs> and uh, so as I'm running, though, I, I am hearing a hiss, a, a hiss and a whine. So I, I know I'm, I'm still getting engaged. But 
eventually get it to um, eventually get to my Humvee and just get behind the meat of it. And yeah, at this point, I want to know what has happened to my ankles. So I look down. It's my right ankle uh, on the left side of my right ankle, and I see uh, a hole in the boot with an expanding expanding blood stain. And I look on the other side and I see a jagged hole in the boot with an expanding blood stain. Uh, and at that point, I mean, that, that was, I knew I had been shot, but, but seeing it was uh, kind of, it, it was shocking. And so I looked to my left and it turned out that my fire support NCO, uh, Sergeant Rudy, had gotten behind that truck as well and was and was starting to scan for targets. Uh, and so I punched him on the shoulder and with what I thought was consummate calmness, said, Sergeant Rudy, I've been hit. But I'm sure it didn't come out with consummate calmness. And I'm sure, you know, having just ran on it and having had the shock of feeling it and seeing it, uh, that I was looking off, pale in the face, green in the face, what have you. Uh, and I never specified where I had been hit. And Sarudi, uh, kind of a, a, a bowling ball of a guy, you know, sw- slings his, his rival and just goes, goes to, to grab me, but, but in his own adrenaline-filled moment, basically tackles me back into the road. <laughs> and he's got his arms under, you know, in my vest under my armpits, and, he, and he's just shaking me, going, sir, you're going to be okay. And at this point, I mean, I knew it was my ankle, so I knew it wasn't life-threatening, and I got hit, and I'm shaking him right back, going, I know it's just my ankle. Get off of me. <laughs> and, and so we both collect ourselves and get back behind the Humvee. And... Uh, and he by now sees it's it's obviously a, a through and through hit, not life threatening. And and at this point, uh, our interpreter, Mac, is over there, uh, just calmly just starting to to apply buddy aid, and he's he's putting pressure on it. And, and at, at that point, you know, he's saying, "Okay, what do you want?" So I need, can you hand me my rifle because when you tackled me, it. It's now out of arm's reach. <laughs> and so he hands it to me, and I look around, and I, I realize now people are starting to be aware that I've been hit. Uh, and so now, you know, it's the young second lieutenant in me is, is now conscious of that and still wanting to set a good leadership example. So I just roll over and get on a wheel and just start scanning my own sector while our interpreter is very calmly applying uh, uh, very calmly applying buddy aid. And so we get to a point where everybody's has assessed the situation enough that they uh, they know that we're not about to get attacked by a significant force, that it, it, there is a sniper out there, so we're starting to react. Uh, and we get to a point where the medic can make his way over uh, and and start to to help me. Uh, so at this point, then I'm okay with 
as people have reacted, my sector has basically gone away. So, uh, so now I'm just sitting there, and, and the medic's working on on me, and, and he says you want some morphine, some morphine, uh, and at this point, I'm I'm not sure what's going to happen if we are going to be attacked more. So I know that it is the adrenaline starting to wear off and it's starting to hurt a little more, but it's not too bad. Uh, so I wave them off and, and just say, let's once we evac, we'll, we'll, we can do that because I wanted to make sure that I still had my still have my wits about me. So we do get to the point where we can evac, and obviously it's not not life threatening. Uh, so we're not going to do an area vac. Uh, what they they cobbled together a three Humvee movement. Uh, they threw me in the psyop, the psyop truck, uh, and the medic in there as well. You know, we start making our way back, and, and Doc does his thing and gives me morphine, and uh, then I just start getting loopy. The the psyop soldiers told me later that I was just the whole way back was just. Crump, how you doing? <laughs> Good, sir. How are you? Well, not the best. And just had that conversation repetitively for the entire movement back. Uh, but what I do remember of the movement back is uh, that it was a good thing that I was in the PSYOP vehicle because the level two was actually on Camp Liberty right next to where my battalion's area wa- my battalion's area was and we were coming back in through ECP3 uh, and a striker company was also entering at the same point and there so there's basically this traffic jam at ECP3 and uh the uh psyop soldiers just flipped on their loudspeaker and just attention attention we have a casualty make way and so obviously you have this striker company parting and so we're we're zooming through and we finally get uh get to the aid station where fortunately for me uh those couple shots were really the only shots that were fired in our area that day so i was the only casualty coming in and i had the the entire aid station that entire level two was given their undivided attention to me so when we pull up i see the, my battalion staff kind of standing off to a side, and I see easily a platoon's worth of medics and doctors just waiting for me. And at this point, this is all starting to seem a little absurd. <laughs> and uh, out I go and into the aid station, and, and, and they start working on me, and, and while well, the morphine starts wearing off. Did you wind up staying in Iraq or going home? I stayed. Uh, so I stayed it, again. It wasn't life threatening. Uh, I was lucky where it went in. It went in on the entry side. It 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 kind of skimmed along the the ball of the joint um, without actually hitting the joint. Had it been a higher caliber round or or a couple millimeters to the left, I uh, probably would have lost the foot. And it went out uh, nicking my Achilles. The way the angle was uh so had it been a millimeter or two to the right it would have ruptured the achilles would have been just terribly bad news um in fact it was such a perfect angle for not doing uh anything terribly serious that 
my battalion commander kept referring to me as the luckiest lieutenant in Baghdad. But, uh, uh, so anyway, because of that, because it, it had nicked along the Achilles, um, they could not – They obviously, I wasn't going to lose the foot. Uh, but they couldn't sew it shut without causing more damage. They couldn't carterize it without causing more damage. Uh, so the best solution they could arrive at was uh, to let it heal from the inside out. Now, obviously, that doesn't require evacuating outside outside theater. Uh, and I was insistent that I could still contribute to the team while it was healing. Uh, so they gave me uh, they gave me pain medication. Well, first doc who saw me it was it was kind of a, a classic army medicine story. Uh, where this was actually a pediatrician, a reservist pediatrician who had been mobilized, uh, mobilized to fill a shortage. And so the, the first doc who saw me in the aid station after they had done the initial treatment said, I, I'm supposed to help you manage your pain. So here you go. <laughs> and he gives me, and I still have this, it's, it's a, like this sick call slip that says, gunshot wound, right ankle. Light duty, no running, three days. And he gives me this Ziploc bag full of Motrin. <laughs> and uh, I'm still somewhat medicated, and, but confused. Uh, but, you know, at this, I'm still processing everything. So I, I don't have my wits about me enough to say this, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> and uh, uh, fortunately, though, the ortho came by not long after that and gave me Looked, saw what had happened, and and swapped out the Motrin with with real pain medication, and uh, and so what I was uh, what I, the instructions that I had been given was you don't need to evac from theater, you can go back to your battalion, but you do need to come back to this level two every morning to get it checked and cleaned out thoroughly uh, to to keep the infection away, uh, and so it was. In, initially still weak and painful, uh, so they just they put me on crutches. They said, stay off it until you can tolerate weight, uh, and it's going to heal from the inside out, so this is going to take a while. Uh, so what I did while it was completely open um, was uh, I just focused on the intelligence work inside the company, which was interesting because our first and most immediate problem was we need to get a handle on the sniper. So my assignment was basically to, to comb through all the intelligence reports that I could get my hands on that might have something to do with the guy who just shot me, which was interesting because the first debate was what kind of a weapon is he using? And there were all people had all kinds of opinions and, um, and so what I did first day back, what I did was I just, I still had the boot with the holes in it. So I just put it on the desk, pulled out one of my magazines, pulled out a 5.56 five, rounds and put it in the hole, realized it fit perfectly and said, he's using a 5.56. Five, he's using 5.56. Five, five, so uh, we should probably be looking for an M16, an M4, something similar, uh, something that, and then start combing through the intelligence reports and, and, and start corroborating, uh, lining up corroborating reports that talk about a sniper operating in that area with a 5.56. Five, 
some type of a 5.56 five, and start trying to line it up. Now, at this point also, even though I'm getting it cleaned daily, an infection does happen, uh, uh, which was confusing. Um, uh, it, but, you know, they, they gave me the antibacterial uh, medications, infection goes away, and as it's going away, I come across a, a report that it's talking about a sniper operating in our area with an American M16, uh, and this, the little nugget of detail in this report is that he hides the weapon and all of the munitions in the underside of an outhouse. So now I know why I got an infection. <laughs> and, uh, and this is all just, just so strange to be doing this, this, this collection effort on somebody who just who just shot me but uh so meanwhile i am going back uh to the aid station every day it's a morning torture routine uh that they would uh, they were doing very good work don't get me wrong but it just it hurt because uh, what they would do is pull everything that they had put into it the day before out uh flush it out with a saline solution uh clean it thoroughly with a q-tip uh which that really hurt uh, and then they'd pack it with salt water gauze, uh, then gauze strips, uh, and then obviously put big gauze on the entry and the exit wound and, and wrap it up. Uh, so about after two weeks of this, it was starting to heal from the inside out. So I still had an entry wound and an exit wound, but it no longer you could no longer see through it, uh, that it had closed up in, in the very middle of the ankle. And with that came back a little bit of strength. So I kept insisting, insisting, insisting that I can, I can go back and do missions again. Uh, we do uh, ride around a lot, and I can take the walking that we do. Uh, and uh, my commander wasn't buying it until uh, I threw on all my battle gear, all, all the full battle rattle, and, and did just stood in front of his desk doing toe raises. And he said, all right, if you can convince the doc... <laughs> I said, okay, went and did the same thing to the dock, and they said, okay, you can go out on missions again, but we need to do double down. Since you'll be out and about, we need to double down on cleaning, and we need to take extra steps to keep, uh, keep the infection away. And he tasked the medics with coming up with those extra steps. Uh, I still remember them, uh, Debbie Brown and Jackie Rapaz. They put their heads together, and, and the best thing that they could come up with and it was brilliant with the materials that they had in, in available, was that after they tape up the gauze on the entry and exit wounds, they would then t- do three or four layers of saran wrap and duct tape. And with that, I was waterproof. <laughs> I could wade through a canal and any other filth that was out there. Um, and so I was ready to go. And the first mission back was kind of a wake-up call, though, because we were out on a normal mission, went, went pretty uneventfully, uh, came back, uh, and then we had a time-sensitive target uh, that brought us into what had been an industrial compound in the more built-up area of our AO. And we went on it with about 30 people. Well, enough, it was big enough 
force that we had about 30 dismounts. Now, you go through an industrial compound, though, with 30 people, it's only a matter of time before you're coming up on a door as the first one who's coming up on the door. So coming up on the door, first one, I'm a righty. I wind up, kick through the door just as normal, except that happens to be the foot that's still recovering from the gunshot wound. So it's that hurt worse than the initial shot. I, 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 so bad that I saw a flash of light that just wasn't there. But, uh, so obviously I spun off, spun off the door, took a knee, realized my error, <laughs> and uh, uh, I could feel wetness inside again. Uh, and that set me back a little, but it didn't, it didn't open things up in the center again. Uh, so that was good. It just, uh, you know, it, it had ripped open a part that was just outside the center that had just started to, to close. So uh, the medics, uh, Brown and Rapaz, were pretty mad at me and let me know it the next day. Uh, but so, so anyway, the, the lesson was uh, don't ever let yourself be in the first person in the stack while your ankle's still healing. Uh, but also, it, it, was, it was tough. It, it, it was... I probably should not have gone back on missions that early. I felt compelled to. I felt an obligation uh, to effectively lead my team, to be a leader in the company. Uh, and there was just so much going on, and I was still there. Uh, that you know, I felt duty-bound. It felt that I had to. Uh, but I was reminded every time I went over uh, a piece of rubble, loose piece of rock, every time the ankle jolted, uh, that maybe it was a little too early, but there we were. What was particularly strange, though, was given the nature of a counterinsurgency fight, there are no front lines. You have company AOs, so the lines never actually move. So while I was off missions for about two, two and a half weeks, it wasn't like when I was rejoining missions and rejoining the company that I was rejoining them in a new area. So I had to nearly every day, so several times a week, be in and around the area where within a three or four block radius, I had been grazed in the face and then shot through the ankle. And that was tough. That kind of plays mind games with you. And it became a almost a, a test of resilience just to keep my mind focused on the mission and not just freaked out that I was about to get shot again by the same person in the same place. So that was, and then also to not let on to any of the folks that I was leading that I was feeling that because <laughs> I owed them having my mind's strictly on the mission. I owed that to them, and I owed it to the rest of the company. Uh, but I did find that it was a little inescapable, so sometimes I just had to keep, keep the mask on and, and, and not let that fear show, and at the same time wrestle with the fear and try and just make it go away into whatever 
recess of the brain it can it can hide out in so I can do my job. Were you successful at that? I think so. I think so. Uh, over time, that feeling started to go away. It started to go away just because just out of repetition. Uh, it felt it felt so strange the first time I was back out on a mission and in the same general area that I had been hit. So strange. But the more the more I went back. Uh, into Kandari and into that general area, it, it did help over time. And of course, uh, then in late January, end of February, uh, the sniper definitely died in a firefight. Um, and so then I wasn't worried about it anymore. But between, uh, between me getting hit and his end, um, he did get three others uh, from my company. Fortunately, we were, we were lucky. Everybody lived. Um, but he, he did get three others from our company and took, took shots at several more. Uh, but once, once he was off the table, obviously there are other snipers out there, but that was, um, that kind of helped. Before he was taken off the table, mm -hmm. what kind of self-care were you doing to prepare for missions? So I would just make sure that when I had time, sometimes you never had time because sometimes the missions were time-sensitive missions and you were, you were running to it. But when I had time, I would get my part of the planning process to a point of completion, try to get it about half an hour before, before we would be assembling for the pre-mission brief. And I would try to give myself just half an hour to be alone, clear my head of anything but that mission. And that usually helped. If I had that amount of time, if I had that amount of time, I could, I could usually talk any jitters away. If I didn't have that amount of time, then I was talking the jitters away as we were moving out. A different strategies for doing that but usually it, it it helped that sergeant rudy also has a healthy sense of humor so sarcastic banter usually helped <laughs> and uh so that that was those were just a couple couple ways of, of trying to do it now i wish that i had been mature enough to probably would have helped had I been mature enough at that point in my life to um, not try and take it all on my own, uh, to find a buddy in the battalion to, to talk about it with, uh, you know, maybe, maybe even talk to the chaplain about it, um, to express it somehow to somebody. But at that, at that point in my life, I, I was not mature enough to take advantage of, of those avenues. When they killed the sniper, mm -hmm. did you get the rifle? Yes. So he, um, he was pretty high up in the local Al-Qaeda and Iraq network. So he was one of those, you're not going to take me alive types. And uh, so that meant that whenever he committed himself to an action, he was wearing a, a suicide vest. However, in this one, he didn't, he didn't, 
detonate himself. Best we can tell is there was some accidental detonation. Maybe anyway, <laughs> there was some accidental detonation uh, because there there were there were some others around him, and he he was actively fighting at the time. Um, so what we recovered was basically the rifle from the trigger well forward. Uh, and so there were, actually was, being in battlefield forensics, there was a forensic lab on, uh, over on Camp Victory. Uh, so we dropped it off there to see if there was anything, that, any usable intel that they could derive from it. There wasn't anything. Uh, so once we, we got it back, it was clearly an American M16. Uh, so we ran the serial number, and we found that it had been um, lost in action uh, by two eight Marines in the Battle of Fallujah uh, in, in 2004. Uh, and it just so happened that two eight Marines was back, and they were the next battalion to our west. So we gave it back to them. <laughs> and, uh, and they... They thought that was that was pretty funny, but I, I have a distinct memory of their battalion XO uh, saying to my battalion XO, "Well, it's a good thing we could get this back before it could do any damage." And my battalion XO just says, "Yeah," and then looks at me just very awkwardly, <laughs> and I took that as my cue to leave. Rory, thanks for coming on the spear today and sharing that story of, of being wounded and your recovery process from that. Well, thanks for having me, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.